I say to people, I'm going to be in your personal space. And I don't mean to do that intentionally, but that's the only way we're going to work well together is if I know everything about what's going on in your life. And that is really interfering in your personal life. This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. The scariest part of overtraining is that we often don't realize it's happening until it's too late. Overtraining can have wildly varying consequences. You might get lucky and get away with something mild, or you might end up with a long-term injury, illness, or the loss of motivation to train or compete in any way. On this podcast, we're huge proponents of enjoyment being the number one goal, and a loss of enjoyment usually means something has gone seriously wrong. So today we're talking about seven warning signs to look out for of overtraining before it's too late. Just before we get into it, a quick note, our application portal for one-on-one coaching was malfunctioning recently, and we had many people manage to contact us saying that they had applied to join, uh, but hadn't heard back from us. So if this was you, our sincere apologies. Uh, we are good coaches, but sometimes not good tech experts. Uh, but if we haven't gotten back to you about an application, uh, we always do, so I'm, f- I'm afraid it might have been lost an interweb somewhere so please reach out to us again the web page is definitely working now trivelocoaching.com.au uh, you can apply by the website or you can contact us somewhere easy like on instagram Coaching. as always this episode is brought to you by our proud sponsor giant australia for all your bike training and racing needs ride life ride giant dad welcome to another episode and on the topic of enjoyment let's start with our normal segment what are you grateful for thanks George. yeah looking forward to uh this topic it, it is an interesting one and we do think we know a lot about it but uh yeah it'd be good to to get get our views across today i'm looking forward to it um my gratitude today i don't want to bore people with my progress um with since my back operation but i'm actually at week 20 which is a bit of a milestone um and things are generally progressing quite well. Um, I'm a bit of a hard taskmaster, I reckon, because uh, it's slower than I'd like it to be. But uh, I am abs- absolutely grateful the fact that I have gone through this operation and now it's given me the opportunity to allow me to pursue pretty much everything I want to do from this point going forward. And if I hadn't have done this operation, uh, I would have been absolutely limited and got to a point where I, I wouldn't be able to ride or swim or run. Um, I can't run anyway, but um, I certainly wouldn't have been able to ride or swim uh, down the down the track, uh, and that that might have been in the next two or three years. Um, but it's it's so good to actually be able to go training and not have my vertebrae impinging on a nerve, causing me all sorts of pain through my back and any ex- exercise that I was doing before. And now that's gone. Um, it's really, I'm really grateful for that, and looking forward to the future. It's actually uh, been a good little case study, and I won't dwell on this too much, but um, since we've been quite public about the story, we've actually had a lot of our own athletes reach out to you and say, wow, they've had something similar, and then they've ended up going through a similar process and ended up on a path to have the same surgery, and it's quite common for cyclists to have back issues, and for me, it just brings up this point of um, cycling, uh, from what we know, (laughs) the position on cycling is just not, it's not a good or ideal position for the back. Um, And so whether these issues stem from cycling or their previous issues and cycling just exacerbates them, you know, it's, it's probably out of the individual case but um, I was talking to um, a friend of mine who was actually a guest on the podcast Dr. Jordan Moncrief and um, he was laughing um, not at the surgery aspect but at the fact that um, you know he just looks at bike positions and he sees many cyclists in his clinic uh, and he's just going it is just so far from an ideal posture Um, so he's just saying it's no wonder people have gotten back problems and the funny the interesting part for your story was you've had this problem for so long and it is you know, so clearly a, a nerve problem. But when you were doing as much work as possible off the bike, um, into strength training, DNS work, movement work, um, that was probably the only time over a six-month period when you were going full on in that that you had relief from that. And that wasn't a long-term fix, but it was definitely a short-term fix um, to alleviate some pain. So that's just an interesting thing to think about. So we hope that anyone listening can get value, value out of the story. And it's it's definitely been an interesting one to watch from that perspective. Didn't, don't know if you want to comment on that. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I totally agree with everything you've said, and um, we are quite concerned that there are a lot of uh, bike riders who could possibly have a nerve impingement like I had, and um, and in fact, uh, my surgeon's actually um, going to do some research on it to see if uh, it is a common thing. Um, is it because some of it can be genetically um, based, and mine was a little bit of that genetics. Um, caused my problem initially because um, I had started this uh, issue back in 1988 when I was literally 27 years old. So, you know, I'm now 65 nearly and 
um, you know, that's a long time to have an issue uh, like this. And there were certain things that I could do that alleviated, as you alluded to, with uh, some structural uh, work uh, off the bike that that saved me. Uh, but but that was never going to be uh, a, a long term solution because one, you know, once the vertebrae is hitting a nerve, the pain is too much, and there's not not a amount of medication you can take to to stop that. So it is an interesting topic and um, uh, one that I'm really interested in, in now because it's there's been when you start talking about it, people go, oh look, I've got similar symptoms and and if you know in the early days there was no such thing as an MRI. You know the only thing we had was a an uh, X-ray, and it doesn't tell you a lot about what's going on in, in the detail of, um, of of your structure, except for bones. So, so yeah, now that we've got you know better opportunities to see what's going on in the back uh, or in any injury, uh, you can make better diagnosis, and uh, and that's a good thing. Yeah, and I, I didn't want to um, go too much into detail on this topic just for the sake of talking about it, but I did want to because I think it's important for a lot of athletes out there, especially if we're cycling a lot of volume, to just be aware of that. And you know, our approach, as you, if you're a listener of this podcast, you will know that we we come from such a holistic approach, and um, our goal is is so much around how much this can amplify your life and amplify your enjoyment of life, your quality of life, um, your overall health. But we don't want something like cycling to have a negative impact on your life. And um, if this is happening, then it might cause you to ask some questions and go, what what could I be doing off the bike? Or is there something more serious? Is there someone I need to to go see? And we hope that this story might highlight that for you. My own gratitude. I realized uh, recently that uh, my gratitudes are so constantly around um, summer and warm weather. I think my one last week or the week before was on the spring weather coming through. And I thought to myself, actually, that's not good enough because then you're just relying on sunny days to, to feel good and um, you actually have to learn to appreciate the opposite as well. And um, we had a pretty recently uh, rainy and very cold spring after some really nice 20, mid-20 degree days. It went down to, I think it was 12 degrees or something. And I would normally just turn off the day. I just hate it. And I, it's just miserable. And I actually decided to embrace it and go, you know, it's it's nice to have that cold, fresh feeling. Go for a walk, breathe in the cold air. If it's raining, just embrace it. Um, you know, go for, go for a run in the rain. And um, you're laughing at me because I was waiting for a bit of a break in the rain. And it was just torrential downpour. Um, and after probably two hours of waiting for a break in the rain, I ended up running in the rain anyway. And um, it stopped after 10 minutes. And once you, I rugged up and um, it was kind of a fun run. And so, yeah, it's, it's good to appreciate the opposite. So I wanted to make sure at that point that I, I don't just have to rely on the, the sunny weather to feel grateful. Yeah, and look, we are we were, people from the Northern Hemisphere who have real serious winters um, would be absolutely <laughs> la- laughing at our, at our wussing out at such... You know temperatures that are quite mild compared to what they're used to. You know, some amount of number below zero, and here we are pushing <laughs> exactly. out at twelve degrees. And yeah. um, so yeah. I think there's some irony in that. But uh, but look, I have I have a rule on the bike: if it, if it's raining before I go out, I'm not going out. Um, but as a runner, I absolutely <laughs> loved running. It is, yeah. But as a runner, I absolutely loved running in the rain. It it just didn't phase me because I, I knew that the risks were less. Um, as a bike rider, it's really you know high risk to go out of the rain with, you know, you only have to hit tram tracks and understand how easy it is to come down. Um, and I've done that many times, and and just you know the the new brakes that we've got, the disc brakes made it so much easier. And the rim brakes, rim brakes never worked in the rain. You could barely stop fast, so it was a dangerous way to, to train. And we've got so many op- options indoors now. So, but as a runner, it's yeah, look, just you're going to get warm anyway. So. Um, yeah, moving on to what's caught our attention and, you know, it's great timing to talk about, uh, overtraining because we've had, you know, a lot of marathon talk and there's a lot of marathons kind of happening right now and they kind of go hand in hand where marathons are rife with people getting over fatigued, overtraining, losing motivation. I've definitely spoken to a lot of people who are just getting to the last part of their marathon training block and they're just so sick of it. They're just so sick of the long training. Um, and it is on that borderline of overtraining. So it does kind of tie in together, uh, but Melbourne Marathon this weekend, uh, which is really exciting, and that will be done by the time this podcast comes out. Um, we also had Berlin and Chicago Marathon over the last few weeks, two of the majors around the world, and they are absolutely worth talking about because, my goodness, we saw one of the greatest human performances of all time uh, in Kelvin Kipton breaking Elliot, Elliot Kipchoge's um, famous world record. Um, there was a lot of talk about whether he could do it or not. Chicago isn't as fast as course as Berlin. Um, and he did it incredible. He, he beat it by 35 seconds, I think. Um, wow, that for me, 
the this performance is just it's it's just no matter which way you look at it, it's almost incomprehensible how fast he is running for forty two kilometers. I did see uh, a YouTube video on some guy who said that he couldn't run two hundred meters at that pace. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and you know, that puts it in perspective, you know, to run 250 pace for 42 kilometers is phenomenal. If, you know, if anybody who goes out and, and tries to do 1k repeats, you know, you know, fresh, you would be lucky to do, some people would be lucky to do four minute K pace for 1k repeats and they're, they're, yeah. they're people classed as runners. Um, yeah. and here we are, got, you know, there's a whole lot of people in the world who can run under three minutes per k for 42k it is phenomenal the level that, that uh, athletes can achieve and just the way he did it uh you know the negative split which you know we we do bang on about a, a lot and and love that concept um but to run 10k in 27 minutes in a marathon wow that's that's special yeah look um i think the fact that it, it, it made such major news and, you know, it made my, my friend's group chat, which none of them really care about running or, or marathons and, and to, for, to be talked about in there shows, I think, how wild this is because they all understand that because when the news says he averaged 2 minutes 51 per kilometer, everyone just goes, hang on a second. Yeah, he averaged that for a marathon and, and people start questioning, could I, could I do that for a kilometer? And there's those famous videos where they put the treadmill at that speed and get people to run on it and people are just sprinting and they can't last 10 seconds. Um and that's just non-runners. You know, even the average runner understands how ridiculous it is. But like you said, he's a, he's he's noted for his negative splitting. Um, but he went under sixty minutes in the back half, which we just absolutely love. He came home like a steam train. Um, but some of the, like I said at the start, if you look at any way you look at this, it's just ridiculous. Some of the stats that I was I was reading about um, the times, his fastest mile was four twenty one. You know, that is absolutely flying that is sprinting you see guys run a mile around the track of 421 they are absolutely moving it's about four minutes or maybe sub four minute 1500 pace it's just ridiculous like to run that in a marathon um and yeah his fastest 10 kilometers in there i think it was potentially the 30 to 40 kilometer mark or 25 to 35 kilometer mark was sub 27 minutes you know that is almost olympic standard 10 kilometer running not it's 40 seconds off um or or less it's 35 seconds off um, Olympic standard 10 kilometer running and he's done that in a marathon we have to do it four times um, his 5k splits were continuously around the 14 to 14.30 mark with his best 5k at 13.51 again that's exactly 13 or 34 seconds off the 5k Olympic standard it's just again you look at the you look at the two half marathons you know his first half in a minute 48 his second half sub 60 you look at the 5k splits you look at the um, his fastest mile you just can't comprehend how well this guy is running for 42 kilometers. And and again, it was it was two hours and 35 seconds. So it was about 36 seconds faster than Kipchoge's. Um, and he might go faster. He might go to Berlin and, and everyone's talking about, can he run under two hours? But um, it is just the absolute peak of, of human movement and performance. And I just can't understate how how wild it is. But also, the, all the stats you've just read out... Uh, Sometimes it's easy to gloss over them, but just dig into that half marathon. Like, there aren't a lot of people who can run a sub-60 half marathon, sub-60 minute half marathon. And he's done that in the second half. After he's already run a half marathon, he's run a sub-60 half marathon for the second half. And when I saw him finish, it looked like he hadn't hardly run. He was wahooing, yahooing, high-fiving cheering you know getting the crowd to he had both arms waving and like he wasn't a guy who who was un, in trouble um you know you wonder had you know had he a bit more in the tank um and and they're the things that uh that i think about as a coach is well maybe he was too conservative early and look we are really into the negative splitting uh method of running um uh, you know, give yourself a, uh, some conservative start pace strategies and watch watch yourself just get faster. And that's a great way to, to do a triathlon or a, or a time trial or, or, a, or a 10K or a 5K or, or a marathon in this case. is The concept is that you wouldn't expect to be running minutes faster in the second half. You'd expect to be, you know, 10 or 20 seconds faster in the second half not you know it's not it's not a that would be poor execution if you are two or three minutes quicker it means you're really too conservative early and and that is there's nothing wrong with that it's actually it's actually a better way to run than running too fast at the start and then and then absolutely fading so that you're you know you're losing three or four minutes uh in your second half that that's not an enjoyable way to do it and we've talked about that many times but 
I just want to get across to people that the negative split, you know, don't be don't be thinking that you should be smashing your first half as a negative split to the second half. We're really pushing more even pace running, yeah, rather yeah. than the negative split where the margin could be. You know, you might have done five seconds slower in the second half. That to me is good enough for a negative split. I'm trying to see if you can run evenly from start to finish, and and that means you're going to get the most out of your yourself and not have any. Uh, thing left out on the road, you know, you, you're really delivering as much as you you can, and you probably won't be able to high five anybody in the last two or three hundred meters because you're you're running on empty at that point, and that tells you that you couldn't have given any more. Uh, but I'm wondering whether Kipsum had a little bit more <laughs> to, yeah, to, you know, he's only thirty odd seconds under the the holy grail of marathon of two hours. Um, yeah, but you think you think about it, he has to wipe off a second per kilometer. You have to go, he has to go two fifty pace. You know, something that's to go from two fifty one to two fifty just seems so hard. You know, when you're absolutely maxed out like that, it's like where can you find thirty five seconds? Um, but you know, if you if you had a hologram of Kipchoge's world record versus Kiptum's, Kipchoge was almost a minute ahead of him at the halfway point, and then you know fades a lot. If you look at the five k splits, Kipton's first five k was almost his slowest. I think it was his second or third slowest of the whole thing, whereas Kipchoge, when he ran, uh, his first 5K was top four of his fastest. And his his slowest 5Ks, all the three slowest 5Ks all came from um, 25 to 30K, 30 to 35, 35 to 40. So he was really fading at the back end. And he's, um, yeah, his last 5K was absolutely his slowest of the entire run. So you know, it's hard to criticize the potentially the greatest marathon runner of all time. Um, depends on how Kipton goes. He's only 22 or 23. So he might have an even more decorated career over the next. 10 years but you know it's interesting to see yeah their execution strategies and one might suit the other more but we would definitely be big advocates of of Kipton's um Kipton's way of going about it and I just I was even doing the math on if you think about the world's best 1500 meters runners Ingebrigtsen's and these guys they're running for 1500 they're running 223 pace or something you know and then if you take the more you increase the distance, the more for me the runners get more ridiculous and their talent gets more ridiculous because the five k world record is two thirty one pace, I think. So yeah, it's incredible they're only like you know, less than ten seconds slower than the fifteen hundred meters runners over per k, but, but they're doing that sprinting for five k. And then the ten k is even more ridiculous. It it only jumps up to two thirty two thirty four pace or something. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, it's something marginal like that, you know. So they're running double the distance, but they're only just going fractionally slower, um, three or four seconds per K. And then you jump up to the marathon and, and he's running two fifty one. You know, it's it's only ten or fifteen seconds slower than these guys for world record ten kilometer pace. I just that just astounds me. I just I really wanted to make that point. Yeah, look, uh, a, a bit of a controversial um view on it as well. Uh with Kip Chogi running the one fifty nine Fifty uh, with the Nike experiment and how that's not really been um, everybody's dismissing it. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I still, I struggle yeah. with that, and I know the the reason is because of pacing. But there was pacing in every marathon that's been run around the world. The only difference between the pacing that uh, Kipchoge had was people came on and off, whereas pacing that's that's being done. Currently, the runners can only run until they can last, and then they peel off, and the runner has to run the rest of the race themselves. So it's still pacing; it's just a variation yeah, yeah. of pacing. So, yeah. so it's a bit frustrating it's... for me that Kipchoge's doesn't get recognised, um, even though all three runs have been brilliant. You know, the one fifty nine, the two thirty, and the two fifty, two hour thirty, two hour fifty. They're they're unbelievably great, <laughs> great results, but. Uh, but I think every, you know, the guy's still run it. He's still broke yeah, in two exactly. hours. So yeah, yeah. If his body if he moved forty two point two kilometers in under two hours. Um, but yeah, I understand, and that's why I think Kipton's run is actually more impressive because he was by himself for a lot of it. It's a course with a lot more turns. You know, Kipchoge's breaking two hours was just straight, and then a really nice wide turn, so you don't lose any speed. Um, that makes up a lot of difference. So yeah, geez, it's fascinating. And then on the women's side, we haven't even touched on on that aspect over the last um, couple of weeks. It's been crazy moving in the women's side. The Ethiopian runner Tig Zasefa broke the world record by three minutes, um, which is just ridiculous. Like she she jumped it down from two fourteen to two hours eleven minutes fifty three seconds. Which um, if you actually watch the uh, footage at Ber- that was at Berlin, um, you can see Liam Adams finishes just in front of her, and you pointed that out, saying, "Geez, that looks like Liam Adams." It turns out it was. Uh, that's a great run by Liam Adams there to run two hours eleven minutes as well. But um, 
that is just a ridiculous performance as well to break it by three minutes and suddenly you know you've got the best woman runner in the world running two hours 11 minutes um far out that is good running and then um what has blown my mind is um we've spoken about Stefan Hassan um before she is probably one of the most accomplished athletes among all distances she has notoriously gone for the 1500 5k and 10k triple at both the world champs and olympics um hasn't managed to do it because it's such a tough schedule um but she ran at chicago she just ran 213 which would have broken the old world old world record by a minute and like i said a month ago six weeks ago she was in the 1500 5k and 10k at the world champs and competing for the gold medal she lost the gold medal by inches she got she podiumed in, in or in two of the three events, um, and then she's come out and broken what would have been the world record for the marathon, except for it was it was broken down to two hours eleven minutes a few weeks ago. So again, insane running all around. Um, look, there's a lot of comments around putting this down to shoe technology, which has absolutely making an impact. You know, new training, but it's just exciting to see, and it's um, it's making marathons so so exciting to watch. But I can't see shoe technology, Jordan. Look, I, I don't know if this is completely accurate but within the last 10 years the women's marathon record has come down from 220 something to 218 so like it's seven minutes shoe shoe technology is not going to make seven minutes over a marathon maybe i'm wrong there but i just find that hard to believe i just think i think the athletes are far superior now Uh, the shoe technology is helping i'm not saying it's not um but you know 208 was the 1980s, 1990s was the best the the men marathon runners were doing. 207, 208, that was the world record from 1960 to 1980-something. Um, and, you know, a lot of the male runners who were coming in the top 10 in any of these big marathons were running between 208 and 212. And here we are now, we've got the best female runners, two of them, who can run, you know, 211 and 213. And that to me is that that shows the perspective of how far the women have improved in endurance running. And, and I just think it's brilliant uh, that they are so competitive with the males now. It's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Just, I, I mean, we harped on this a bit, but um, I've just been astounded by, by these performances and, and uh, I think it's unreal to see. And it just shows what, what humans are capable of. I really, I read a really cool comment on online watching a video on the marathon and um, someone said that they were a volunteer at the end of at the finish line of the um, Chicago marathon. And they said when Calvin Kipton crossed the line, they said they, it was just astounding to watch. Um, they could not believe what they were seeing with their own eyes. I couldn't believe that physically happened in front of them and they had goosebumps. Um, and they said it was one of the best experiences they've ever seen live. So I thought that was a really cool comment that kind of sums up how I was feeling when I saw the result. Yeah. When you think of marathon, you think of a far out. It's a long day, isn't it? It's, but it, when they're doing it with, you know, they just look like they're running fast now, whereas, you know, you've got so much footage from, you know, back in the day where guys are just coming into the stadium and they're just getting around the track at the Olympics. You know, you don't see these guys finishing with such uh, power and strength and and speed. You know, it just, it the old way was, you know, just get there. And no matter how you got there, <laughs> just get there. And yeah. now it's just so different the way it's run. It's, it's really run with a lot more structure and and understanding of the capacity that they can do and and the risk is less because they're they're doing everything well and know what their capabilities are whereas you know the olden days that the athletes didn't run marathons very often they would run one a year or one every two years or one every olympics almost and and it was way out of their capacity that way out of their their lane almost um and and you know it's just the way technology's changed with training and, and equipment is just it's such a better race to watch now. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Not to overshadow um, some other big things happening in the world, you know, Kona women's race is on this weekend. Um, and we do want to get into the topic because we, you know, the whole goal of the podcast is to help you with training. But um, yeah, it's just exciting to see some of these events. And um, it's going to be really exciting to see what happens with the women's race. Again, once this podcast comes out, the race will have happened. Uh, but it's one of the strongest fields, if not definitely the strongest field ever at Kona. Um, a lot of hype around Kona this year because the men's had their world champs um, in France uh, and now the women get Kona themselves. Yeah, I'm super excited for this race. And as you said, there's so many women who can win this race. And it's it's you've got your favorites and and they're all in form. Having a race just for women, I think, is brilliant. The whole focus is is not being split between men and women. Um, it's just on, on the women's race, and that, that would be a first, I think. 
I think the PTO do that well as well. Um, but for Ironman and Kona, this has never happened before where Kona just has women uh, racing on its own. And and uh, now instead of having a small amount of women and small amount of men combined on the one day, we've got a full field of just women. And I think it's given more opportunity for for. For women to qualify, uh, some mm. some people say that it's uh, thinned the standard down, um, but I don't think that's necessarily true. And I actually read an article in uh, the Triathlete magazine uh, dispelling that theory, and that the, they were doing the medium of most of the times um, had had improved, if not uh, the depth was still was still fine. And and it's a bit disrespectful to say that uh, there's only a, a few really good women in in each age group, uh, and the, and the standard drops off very quickly. Um, that may have been true a long time ago, but that's actually not the case now. There's some unbelievably talented age group athletes, and, and of course, the pro field is is as deep as it's ever been. And the amount of people who can win this race is is not limited to two. It's limited, you know, yeah. ten or fifteen people have an opportunity here, uh, and I can't wait to see how it how it pans out. And I love the fact that there's no male riders around them, so they have to ride themselves. That has what been happening over the. The, the 10 or 20 or 30 years that triathlons um, been running side by side with men and women in the same race um, there's there's artificial assistance and not intentional uh, but just guys are in the way um, and and the women you know are getting are getting to ride with guys age groupers who are not assisting them but they are assisting them um, and and that and not that even just the age groupers you know there there's back end pro guys who are getting caught by the you know the front pack um yeah. pro females and so that is an even bigger advantage because they're actually you know enough to go similar pace so yeah so it's it's going to be great and uh, I'm I'm excited to see see what happens uh, can't wait quick shout out to one of our female athletes Leanne who is rocking uh, representing Trivelo at Kona very exciting to have a Trivelo athlete go to Kona and. Yeah, we love it when an athlete gets over there and qualifies. And for her, she, this will be her. I hate that I don't know the number. I think it's 17th Ironman, something like that. She's done an insane amount. But Kona has been the big one, a big bucket list item that she's never been able to do. And so she's finally able to get there this year. And uh, she's had a lot of interruptions. Uh, classic age group athlete managing three kids who have just been sick all of winter. <laughs> the entire winter, which has completely interrupted her training. She's had a lot more interruptions. It's been an absolute war battle for her to get there. Um, and so big shout out to her for getting over there, um, getting through with it, even though her training has been completely in- interrupted. The most le- least ideal training you can have a Kona, but her mindset is just, no, I've wanted this for so long. I qualified. I'm going, going to do the race. It's going to hurt. <laughs> but um, she's there, so can't wait to see how she goes. And big shout out to her. Last thing we... Uh... Yeah, um, uh, I was just going to say, yeah, um, having been to Leanne's house and met her little children... Um, uh, she's just such a lovely human being and I really wish her well and uh, can't wait to see her with a big smile when she comes down Alihi Drive and uh, c- completes the, the, the event that she's been striving to do for all these years and um, it will be such a buzz for her and uh, no matter what shape she's in or, or uh, state she's in, uh, she'll still be smiling because that's the sort of person she is. She's a, a big happy person to be around and uh, yeah, really uh, good luck. Last thing, uh, we won't we literally will just mention this, but so much happening in cycling that we'll probably get to at some point in the next few podcasts um, with a lot of team movements, um, riders moving teams, um, mergers happening, et cetera, which is it's very interesting to see you know, what happens over the next few years or next year or next season uh, with a lot of these changes and not Yumbo not being so much of a powerhouse anymore if they lose Roglic and they just have bigger guard, et cetera. But I said it before, um, I say it again, that the purpose of this um, podcast isn't for just us to chat about the sport we love, it's to talk about training and um, the importance of getting overtraining right. And we really just want to make sure that if you're an athlete, an endurance athlete specifically, you're so susceptible to this, but we want to give make sure you understand the warning signs of what overtraining can be um, and what you should be striving for um, to get right. Because, Dad, constantly um, you're really pushing athletes to, to adhere to the warning signs because you hear it from them and you get them to stop as soon as you can so that they don't fall into this trap and potentially do some long-term damage. Yeah, and it's really hard uh, when you're an age grouper, and it's probably harder when you're a professional. The things that go through your mind are, as a professional, I am doing this full time. It's my livelihood. It's my income, and I can't be not training. And the perception from outside is that you're not doing enough, and it's really hard to be strict on yourself and be honest with yourself and transparent with yourself about how am I, how am I going 
in terms of my fatigue levels. And that's a hard one. And that's that's where the coach-athlete relationship has to be uh, really good. And one of the things that we do in our interviews when we have people join is that I say to people, I'm going to be in your personal space. And I don't mean to do that intentionally, but that's the only way we're going to work well together is if I know everything about what's going on in your life. And that is really interfering in your personal life. That That is a necessary part of, of the athlete-coach relationship. And and if you're not willing to do that, then you will hit hurdles along the way because if you're not open and honest about what is happening and how you're feeling, because you're super motivated, you're not listening to the warning signs and the coach isn't getting an understanding of how fatigued you are. So you're going to make poor decisions and the outcome is going to be terrible. Yeah, the poor decision making is the biggest one, isn't it? Because you just don't have that objective view and... Yeah, so often if you didn't really have to talk an athlete out of something, they would probably just be making these poor decisions and go down a bad path. And it's important to define the fact that overtraining is not just training too much. And that is that's a really thing for people to understand. It's overtraining is uh, anything from just an imbalance between too much load for what you can handle, too much load too quickly to what you can handle. Um, but it doesn't matter if you're a pro athlete or a beginner athlete. It's, it's about how much load is it being applied to you compared to what you've been doing compared to what your level you're at and compared to what you can handle and it's it's an imbalance of training versus um recovery it's imbalance of training versus um other stresses in your life you know you might your training load might not have increased but other stresses in your life have you know and um that can lead to lack of recovery that can lead to uh, a lot of other things going on in your body and in your world um that make it so you're not recovering properly from the training um and therefore you end up overtraining. so yeah, it's important to start with the fact that it's not just training too much. And so there's other ways that overtraining can come about. And I think that's really important and why people can make poor decisions because they just think, well, I'm not training too much. I'm used to this load or I've done more than this before. And that's not necessarily what's what's causing the overtraining for you. Stress is something that I just think we underestimate stress and load. And I don't mean that in just training. Um, you, you can have stress from so many uh, variables in your life. Uh, if you're single and you're wanting to find someone, have a relationship, if you're married and you've got three kids who are unwell, um, if you're a grandparent and you're worried about your children and their and their kids, um, if you're in an era where uh, work is hard to find and um, your job is not secure, these are things that have enormous impact uh, on your day-to-day stress and, and that can be a burden that weighs you down. Um, so much that you can't actually function and that's got nothing to do with training it's totally to do with your life and what's happening in it and there could be uh, trauma in your in your family with someone um, getting terminally ill or someone dying and all of these things that we don't consider as stresses um, we just consider them as normal everyday functions of life and they are they are normal everyday functions of life all of those things happen um, but we don't we don't give it kudos or credit um, for the impact it has on our day to day existence, and this is the area that I think is so overlooked that uh, it's almost got to a point where I'm saying to people who I feel are heading down this track, you need to stop training, get rid of one of the stresses, and training is probably the biggest stressor on a, on, a, <laughs> yeah. on your on you physically, and you you're not going to enjoy it anyway. So let's just stop training. Go and deal with the things that are causing you to have uh, a distraction, and I don't mean that in a flippant way. I mean a distraction if your if your goal is to to train for a particular event, and there are so many roadblocks being put in front of you. It's almost like, well, far out. Is this really worth it to do this event? And and my answer is all the time, no. What's happening in your in your life apart from your training is more important than what's happening in your training life. So fix up the stuff that's causing the massive stress um, so that you can actually enjoy the thing that's your, your release from all of those things. Um, you know, we, we're doing this sport, whether it's bike riding or triathlon or, or marathon running or cyclocross or gravel riding, it doesn't matter what we've chosen. We're doing it because that's our passion and that's the thing we love to do. We, we love to spend our time, our, our leisure time, doing something that's enjoyable. And the minute that starts becoming not enjoyable, it's just adding to the other stresses that you've already got. So the first thing I'm saying to athletes, and I think they get shocked, is you need to stop training. Yeah. You need to you need to get rid of this goal and 
reset and select another goal down the track once you're on top of the things that are causing you to be so unhappy. And this is one of the things that that is a, a measuring stick is happiness. And people think that um, happiness is just something that happens on a day-to-day. You'll be you'll be serious for one period of, of work and and you need to concentrate and you know there's no time to, to muck around and, and have some fun periods. Um, and then there's times where you want to have fun and you're, and you're out socializing and it's all about being happy and fun. But you need to have that continuously through your life. You need to have that every day. You need to have periods of serious and periods of fun. You can't just segregate them into now I'm going to have fun, now I'm going to be, be serious. You need to have that together so that the balance is you are actually enjoying what you're doing. And, and I know for a fact that if I like doing something, I will get a good result from it. And I'm not talking about uh, sport. I'm talking about coaching, for example, is my chosen career. I can't get enough of seeing my athletes improve. I just, it's like a drug almost. Um, <laughs> I just love seeing people get the best out of themselves. And whether that's going from a, a one hour 10K to a 58 minute 30 10K, that's a buzz for me. That, that's improvement that they've never broken an hour for 10K running and all of a sudden they've smashed it by a minute and a half. And that's some, something that's happening to me daily. So I can't wait to wake up and find out who's done what and how well they've done. And of course, there's going to be athletes who are, who are doing the opposite. They're struggling. They're having a really tough time. They're not enjoying it. They're not happy. They're not succeeding. They're not improving. And that, to me, is just as important as the ones who are doing everything well. And, and that's my challenge. That's my hard days is to find out what I can do better for those people. And the people who are on their journey, I just sit back and watch and go, how good is this? This is so much fun to watch people succeed. And almost every weekend, I've got both outcomes. I've got people who are not performing the way they want, and I've got people who are outstandingly performing. So, so these are things that I am loving doing, and therefore, I'm probably doing a better job at my, at my coaching business because I actually like doing it, and it's fun for me. Um, because I've set it up in a way that the athletes I'm coaching, if they do it well, will get the outcome they're after. So, so I've almost set, set myself a job where if I do my job really well, the outcome for everybody that I'm helping will be a positive one. Without going into any more detail, if you enjoy what you're doing, you will have more success than if you don't enjoy it. And, and that's got to be the number one goal, I feel. Yeah, and it's just such a relevant point because we're going to talk about heaps of um, warning signs of overtraining, but um, ultimately, you know, when someone's sick, injured, they've overtrained, you know, training is becoming a more stressful life. It's It takes away from the overall arching goal, but we are always pushing and that's enjoyment um, and improvement, but enjoyment as well. So, let's look at some key warning signs and, what, uh, and warning factors of overtraining. The first one is poor training sessions performance. So, Specifically, in the session, you're not hitting the targets. The session feels like crap, a bit normal. It's not just um, it's not just a general feeling of tired. It's actually when you go to do the session, you the workouts are a mess themselves. You know, they're um, you're way off your normal numbers, or even way off. You just you really can't get to the top of the range like you normally can. You feel sluggish, heavily. Um, it takes longer to recover. Yeah, look, I I think this is a really tough one to manage uh, because the motivated athlete is always going to put aside in their mind. Um, their negative feelings, uh, tired feelings, fatigue feelings, because they're so driven. And that's a great uh, mindset to have, but sometimes it actually is detrimental to uh, your improvement. So you've got to really be honest and try and rate your your feelings each day. That's what, that's what really helps me. If I'm waking up and thinking, far out, I still haven't recovered from yesterday that well, I've got to really be careful on today's session. Even though it says I'm supposed to be doing a VO2 set or a threshold session set, uh, when I warm up, I'm really looking how I'm going in the warm up. And if, if it, you know, a lot of our warm ups are very similar when we're doing high intensity training. We're, we're going to use a period where we're going to get the blood flow, where it's easy pedaling, and then we're going to do some sort of ramp, and then we're going to do some sort of hard effort to get us ready for the main set. And in that ramp and, and hard effort, if I'm struggling, that's going to be my key indicator. And and if I've already got questions on my mind before I start the training session, then I'm looking to the warm-up to see how I, how I think I'm going to actually go with the main set. And if I get to that main set and I'm not feeling it, there is no way you should be actually doing that training session. You should. There's many options you can do. You can look at the training session and go, okay, let's do exactly what's written on the program, but knock it back by 30%. 
or 40% if we have to. Um, just do the session as it's written, but but take off the the power uh, expectations. And and That's before okay. you know it, you've ac- you've actually got you've actually got a good outcome. You've still done a training session. Um, you've done it in zone one or zone two. Uh, and you've lived to fight another day, and, and that's a hard thing to do for a motivated athlete. And it's okay to do that for a one-off session. Something might have happened, you might have had a really poor sleep, or it's just that day you're feeling sluggish, and then you, you find the next high-intensity session, you batch normal, that's great. But if then if it's repeated, then you need to start thinking, yeah, what's going on here? Why is this repeating itself, and why can't I hit any of the, the sessions properly? Point number two, warning number two, is sickness or injury. And as endurance athletes, our immune systems are constantly on edge and it's so easy to tip it over when you try to balance such a high-volume training load. And um, when you're overtraining, uh, you might be frequently getting sick uh, or it's taking you longer than normal to recover from sickness. Um, and you're much more susceptible to um, little needles that, you know, if, if left unchecked, turn into potential long-term injuries and um, that is just super frustrating, something to really look out for. Yeah, there's, there's two parts to this, the sickness um, and the injury side of it. Um, the sickness is is a difficult one and and I've got that many examples of athletes that I'm coaching who've got young kids and some of them are in daycare, some of them are in primary school, uh, secondary school, some jobs where they're socializing in offices. Uh, and the example during COVID, uh, we had very few people sick uh, because no one was at, interacting at work uh, because everybody was at home. No kids were going to school or daycare. Uh, so pretty much we had a period of, you know, just in our own little area here in Melbourne and Australia, we had a 12-week period where no one was actually allowed to move around the city area. So I had almost no one sick. And that's never been that case in all of the coaching that I've ever had. And it was because no one was interacting and spreading spreading the diseases that are common in everyday life. And and now we're back to normal living. The amount of sickness we've had this this winter has been at a high, all time high. And I've had numerous athletes that I'm coaching getting sick three and four times. And we've had these really hard discussions where you, when you're training with a structured program, your immune system is going to be at its limit. So you really need to be careful about what's happening in your everyday family situation. Uh, if people are coming home sick and there's sickness in your house, you need to be really careful about how hard you're training. Um, and one particular guy is, is, you know, we've actually had to knock off any intensity when there's sickness in his house because he will get it, no doubt about it, because he's sitting on the edge of, you know, training really hard and your immune system is being stressed to the max. Um, but from the training structure and from the program you're doing, because you're training hard for a particular event, and from the stresses of life and your kids being sick and all those things are really putting you on the limit. And, you know, any hesitation, you will get sick because you are sitting on the fence uh, of, of overtraining. And so the goal is, and it's hard again if you're motivated, to pull back when you know that there's sickness in the house and just be careful and, and do things like look at your heart rate uh, variability or your resting heart rate when you wake up. And, you know, I, I put that on our notes in Training Peaks each week for our athletes. You know, what's your, what's your resting heart rate on a Monday morning? Um, and if it's, you know, abnormally different, lower or higher, then it, it's, it's cause for us to have a discussion. And, you know, I, I encourage people to have that every day. But if at least doing it once a week, you know, from the, the sessions you've done over the weekend will, will make or break what, what's going to happen in that next week. So sickness is something that, that really does cause almost the most problems in, in uh, consistency in training. Yeah, and that's our next two points. Point three and four is uh, you know, check your daily resting heart rate or, or check your heart rate variability. And um, you know the the daily resting heart rate again that that could change due to many factors, but it's more the consistent um, you know, uh, kind of exaggerated change that you're looking for. If suddenly your heart rate is is five to ten beats plus higher than normal, and you start to and it happens over one period, not just one day, um, then that's kind of a warning sign that you need to look for. And one other uh, point to mention with um, with injury or sickness is, is muscle soreness is also can also sometimes be a, a warning sign that you're getting way more sore than normal and that that, that isn't ab- could be abnormal and something to look for. Look with injury, the second part of the sickness injury uh, point, you've just got to be sensible with your injuries. You can't push push through them. That that is the worst thing to do. Uh, you need to rest the minute you're injured. Don't try and push through things. That that's going to cause you long term problems. So uh, it's it's easy to say oh it's only a slight niggle here and there but it could turn into something chronic. And, and that's what we want to try and avoid. So you've got to be aware of 
what's happening and make notes in your training peaks again about um, how you're feeling uh, with with niggles and if they become daily then stop what you're doing in terms of if it's a running injury or a riding injury or swimming injury the next one is low motivation and this can be low motivation to train or just low motivation in general and, and people can describe in so fatigue that they've got you know brain fog mental fog uh, or they've just lost the will to train and how many times have someone called you up data it's taking you taking them a while to, to kind of muster up this call because they might feel like they're letting you down and they just say i'm so sorry you're kind of going what's going on with your training like it's just not making sense and are you sick? Are you injured? And they just go, I'm so sorry. And I'm not, uh, I just, I just can't do it. I just can't train. And this is not a one-off conversation. You've had it many times. And um, it's important to have that conversation. You just go straight away, stop, stop what you're doing. It's a key one. And I think that it's the most underrated one. If you're, as we said at the start of the podcast, if you're not enjoying what you're doing and, and that will lead to, uh, there could be a lot of reasons for it. And, you know, one of the reasons could be that you've actually been training to the wrong number and you can't hit all your targets and you lose motivation because you're failing every training session. That's a simple uh, example of how I could be so demotivated because I can't even do the training session the way it's supposed to be performed, but it could be because you actually not got the right FTP number or right pace per, per kilometer to run to. And that could be as demotivating as actually losing the, the want or the desire to train uh, to to keep your fitness going, so there's so many variations in this motivation that can that can come out for the to the same outcome that you you've lost the desire and the will to want to continue. And and my conversation is really a hard one. Um, I'm always saying, like, if you're not enjoying this and you, and you've lost motivation to train, stop doing it and wait till you're actually ready to train again. And you'll know you'll know when you're feeling like oh, you see some runners going as you're in the car driving to work and you see people running along the road or riding their bike and look like they're having fun and and you if you've got that uh desire to to, to want to do that again that's a sign that you're ready to to start again but you've got to have think long and hard about what's caused the motivation to be dropping off what, what are you not happy about and you have to ask yourself those hard questions before you just come back and, and re return to the cycle that actually got you to to be low motivation low motivated again so there is a, a real lot of questions you have to be asking yourself here, um, you know, around what's causing it in the first place. And people are so often relieved when the coach says, just stop, it's okay. And just to hear that objectively, people say, oh, wow, that is a, that is a weight off my shoulders. And, and whether it was the fear of letting the coach down or fear of letting, you know, um, family members down because you committed to this goal or fear of letting themselves down because, you know, they really wanted to do this race and suddenly they've put so much pressure on themselves to get there. And for someone else to say, you don't have to do this. You know, there are other races. There's other opportunities to come. If you're not enjoying this, stop for now. It will come back. And just that wait off for a little bit. And sometimes it's it's much shorter than anticipated. You know, sometimes people go off the program and then very soon after, uh, exactly like you say, they see other people training. They, they might watch an inspiring race. They might listen to an inspiring podcast and bang, it comes back pretty quickly. So sometimes it is about just taking that pressure off. And look, that's, that's an, another indicator over training. If you're just so fatigued that you can't actually think straight it's more than likely you're training too long and too hard and and you know just ha- taking a rest and i've got one great example of one of the athletes last year um who has always nailed the training sessions and it's been one of those guys who's, who absolutely does everything uh uh to to its its description and i love the way he goes about it and all of a sudden he started to not do well in the training sessions and was getting a little bit frustrated with himself that he couldn't hit the targets and and it was a clear sign to me eventually we worked out that he was absolutely overtrained and and it wasn't from the training that he was overtrained it was because of his work uh, there was so much stress at work that he was absolutely exhausted by the time he got home to start to train but he still wanted to tick off the training sessions but he was so fatigued hadn't drank water during the day hadn't eaten well had stress from meetings at work was working long hours and trying to fit in these sessions. And it was actually that was what was causing him absolute issue where he couldn't train properly. So eventually we said, right, take the whole week off. And you know that was hard for him because he's so so motivated and didn't want to do that. But, but it was the best thing. And literally three to four weeks later, he started to train properly again. And I think four or five months later, he's, since that happened, he's nailed his 10K PBs. He's nailed... Uh, FTPs and his swim swim uh, performances in time trialing, and you know he's knocked off three and four minutes off his uh, off his ten k time trial, and that's a great outcome from someone who just 
listened to the advice and then took the time off and, and, and almost started fresh again. Yeah, the next point is kind of follows on from this slow motivation, but it's significant changes in mood and the keyword is there is significant. So, um, you know, if you find that you're more agitated or irritable than normal or you're sad or you're more tense than normal, um, maybe depressed or, or angry or confused, again, that, that brain fog you're talking about, you can't think straight, uh, these are all pr- pretty clear indicators that something might be going on. But as I said, the keyword is significant because you can't generalize it to just being agitated or sad. It's it's if you're more agitated than normal, because if you're an easily agitated person or an easily tense person, um, then that doesn't necessarily mean you're a tramp. If it's if it's that change is more than normal, so and um, that's a really key point to make. And the next one of that is um, it kind of relates to the first one about uh, finding the training sessions tough, but it's higher perceived exertion. So not only are you training probably worse, you're not hitting the numbers, but it actually everything feels a lot harder than it should. Yeah, well, both of those points you've made with the significant changes in your mood and then the sessions are, are, are way harder. They're kind of related, but they're, but they're not. But just on that significant changes in mood, you know, if, if, you, if there's something happened in your life that's, that's caused you so much anxiety that you can't even think about training, then that's a sign, like overtraining, that you need to stop doing that. You need to sort out what's happening in your life before you can actually uh, get focused back with with the training. You've heard me talk about the triangle of love where work, family, and your training, your passion. Um, If one of those sides of that triangle is under stress and collapses, the whole triangle collapses. And to even consider to train is a bad idea. And you just need to park the training for one day, one week, one month, or whatever it takes you to get your uh, life anxiety problems issues sorted and and that's it's a hard one because everybody's on a scale of getting this you know things are going well each day you know this can this can build up over a period of time it only takes one thing to tip it over the edge and before you know it you're actually quite depressed about everything and one thing can cause issues that will skyrocket and spiral out of control and and that's the time where your training becomes insignificant to some people but can actually be a lifesaver for others to, to let them not focus on the things that are really uh, getting them down, going running for an hour or half an hour where you have to concentrate or getting on the bike where you have to concentrate on other things other than the things that are depressing you can be a good thing, but it also can yeah. be a bad thing. So there's both ways to look at it. That was the key point I wanted to make is we probably haven't done a good enough job in this episode of, of clarifying exactly what we mean by parking the training because there are the extreme examples where you're telling someone stop training entirely do not touch the bike, like just have some time away from it. And that is a quite an extreme case, but it does get there. Whereas sometimes when you're saying park the training here because there's work-life struggles, you're not saying you know, don't train at all. Um, you, you're just saying stop with the structured program. Stop with the high-intensity VO2 sets that are that cause a lot of uh, stress on the body. You know, just for, for the next couple of weeks, just ride your bike for enjoyment. Just go for running for enjoyment. Just get in the water, um, swim, go for an ocean swim, um, do zoo, zone one and two stuff. Go ride with your mates if you need to. Um, that's the kind of thing you're talking about when you say back off the training. It's often the training structure and the you know, the really intense kind of training load and week that happens when you're preparing for an A race that can be a problem. And so you're saying that uh, I think this is really important for people to know that we are we love training and, and racing. And our, it's our whole profession. Uh, but you're so willing to park that to make sure that other things in life are, uh, are taken care of, and that's really important. But yeah, we really want to make that distinction that we're not always saying stop training entirely because, as you just said exercise can sometimes be the best thing for you when you're having a bad day and you really want to get your mood back up. And look, most of the people are in this for the long term and the short term gain from from just having a little bit of a break from that uh, and then a, a year or two or three years later, that little two or three weeks you had off, um, you're still a way better athlete in two or three years time because of that decision you made. Because you love, you obviously love the sport and that's why you've engaged a coach and, and you've committed so much of your time and your money into into this sport that you're doing, just look at the big picture and, you, you know, this is something you want to be a part of for quite a long time, then it's okay to actually not be consistent. We do bang on about consistency as king, but it's okay to not do that for a short period of time. And in over over two years, two or three weeks is so minor. Uh, over a month, two or three weeks is the, most of the month. So it, it becomes really major in that small-minded thinking instead of thinking of, thinking of the big picture and down the track. Well, consistency is king and it's better if you back off the training and stay consistent and keep your frequency of training up than continuing the high-intensity training and then running yourself into the ground and overtraining. So, 
The last point here is is poor sleeping. This one's very self-explanatory, but um, yeah, just if you're sleeping poorly, um, again, more abnormal than normal uh, than usual. Uh, that can be a clear sign of overtraining, and we've both had experiences, Dad, where uh, you might just do a session that's just far too hard, not necessarily overtraining, but you just do a, a session late at night that just pushes your body beyond what's capable, and you have a shocking night's sleep after. And that's just a one-off. But if that's happening continuously, then um, yeah, that's that, that can be a clear sign. And that's a, a small one to finish off with. Um, but I do want to kind of point everyone to finish off the last couple of minutes just with some um, some key do's to do instead. And we've, we've spoken about a few throughout these topics, but um, just some really quick solutions. Um, and the first first one is is your kind of go-to, and that's just kind of rest or back off. And these are really important. We talked about all the issues. Now we want to actually come up with some solutions, as you just said. So resting um, is the number one thing you should do when you're under any type of stress tension, anxiety, uh, overtraining, feeling, sickness, injury, um, the first go-to thing is rest. And that can't be any more self-explanatory. And it doesn't mean rest forever. It means yeah. uh, find out how long you need to and then uh, monitor that period until you're ready to go again. An example would be, I've uh, just had one of our athletes, Twister Ankle, in the, at, in the finish line of a race on the weekend, Twister Ankle really badly and uh, looking like she's going to be out for three, four weeks uh, with some key important races coming up. We've done everything right from Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, and all of a sudden, the three days of rest that we've we've forced her to do with no swimming, riding, or running, and all of a sudden, the ankle's feeling way better already because we've done all the right things. And before you know it, she's going to be back training again actually tomorrow, which is quite a remarkable turnaround by just doing the resting properly. And that's kind of the overarching theme here. And I'm going to fly through the rest of the kind of solutions just to be aware of or just to look for. And we have kind of touched on all these throughout the episode. But one is the tribal of love. Assess that the life balance work, life training, what's happening there. Is there part of it that's that's making the rest of it crumble? Um, yeah, prioritize recovery. We spoke about that. Prioritize good nutrition. That is a key one. That's yeah, yeah, really not. If you're not recovering well from training sessions, are you getting your nutrition right pre and post, pre, during and post training? It's a massive one. I often see athletes not doing well going for the endurance rides and they're not feeling properly after. Monitor your increases in training loads. So we've had experts on here before that really talk about not doing dramatic increases of training load of over 10% per session or per week. Um, and that's just a kind of rule to look at. If you're starting to think you're overtraining, look at your progression of training load. It hasn't been too aggressive. And the last one I want to say was um, if you're concerned about your sickness or your health, um, potentially an injury or your nutrition, you're, uh, you're not um, – fueling yourself properly, see a professional about any area that you're concerned about with any of this. If you're not sleeping well, go see a doctor and, and talk to them about that. Um, yeah, if you feel like you're not recovering fuel-wise, yeah, go see a nutritionist. And um, yeah, if there's any area that you're kind of concerned about and you're getting these warning signals, yeah, go see a professional and just see if it's something to be worried about or if it's just a, a one-off. Any comments from you on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the seeking and help and advice is, is almost critical to getting the right outcome and and I'm a big believer in uh, taking notes each day uh, whether you use your training peaks uh, post activity notes section uh, to, to alert the coach who's reading um, reading everything you're looking at your session and reading your notes gets a really quick clear picture of your mindset and how you're feeling and and two or three days of I feel fatigue I don't feel like I'm going well I'm I'm, you know, I'm intervening straight away because I've got good communication from my athletes. So, so seek help, whether it's your coach, and then the next step is medical advice or, um, so some sort of a, a professional in the area where you're struggling, and and that is that is a key thing. And look, the other one we talked about was the uh, the training load, and I've just had a classic example of one of our guys training for the Busso Ironman where. He's absolutely nailing the swim and the bike, and his running has come back from an injury. Um, it's been uh, a long period of injury where we've we've tried to bring him up slowly with all the rules that we use, where we're just trying to improve the load, you know, at a slow priority. But because the event's coming closer, we've had to jump the load a little bit quicker, and instantly we got the injury niggles back. And that's a classic classic example to me of even. You know, us making that mistake because we want to get the guy ready for a marathon and you know he's already, he's only running 20k and he needs to be running 25 30 and we jumped up too quickly and the body can't cope with it and and so that's an example of you know picking a race that you're not actually ready for and we've come to the conclusion already that that we shouldn't be doing that race and that's the decision we already have made so they're examples of of having to make hard decisions based on um, you know things that are going on in your life 
Yeah, and it's uh, it's almost like a blessing in disguise because his body clearly wasn't ready for that load. And sometimes, if if you went into something like a marathon underprepared like that, um, you might end up just injuring yourself in the race so badly because your body's not ready for it. So yeah, it's it's kind of sometimes lucky to get those little needles in training without you know, getting the full injury. So. That's it for this episode. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Join us again later this week for our weekly case study episode where we give real-life examples of how our athletes have improved and what changes we made to get them there. If you'd like to be coached by us, you can go to our website at Flyful 101 Coaching at www.tribalcoaching.com.au, which again, our portal was malfunctioning recently and we had many people manage to contact us saying they hadn't heard back from us. So if this was you, again, we, we are sorry. Please reach out to us again either by the website or you can contact us directly on somewhere like Instagram. Uh, if you'd like to sponsor an episode of the podcast, and if you think you'd be a good fit to sponsor an episode of the podcast, also please reach out to us directly. Thanks as always for being a listener, and we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>